Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, everyone. As we get deeper into 2022, it is time for all of us to do our part, to save democracy and to show that America can and will stay on that arc of bending history towards justice. I want you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up to help our grassroots efforts. Fill out the survey. Tell us where it is you want to help. We'll put you in touch with the people who can put you to work. Jointheunion.us. Do your part. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm once again joined by retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vindman, who was the former director for European Affairs at the National Security Council during the Trump administration. Venman came to national attention in October 2019 when he testified before Congress regarding the Trump-Ukraine scandal. His testimony provided evidence that resulted in Donald Trump's first impeachment charge. Colonel Venman served in the Army for 21 years and is a Purple Heart recipient in addition to many other decorations. Since his retirement, he's published his first memoir, Here, Right Matters, An American Story, and is currently pursuing a PhD in International Affairs at Johns Hopkins University. Alex, welcome back. Thanks, Reed. I'm glad to be here. You know, one thing I want to say is in that introduction, Reed, every time I hear it, and it's not just you guys, I mean, I'm deeply honored to be associated with the institution of the National Security Council of the United States. But why do people have to keep pointing out that it was the Trump administration? I need to start a campaign to get people to stop identifying me as somebody that worked for Donald Trump. But Alex, I mean, the broader point to your comment is that the National Security Council is supposed to be apolitical. It's supposed to allow career national security intelligence and military officers at the White House to serve the national security apparatus and specifically the president for the purposes of keeping the United States safe, keeping the president informed so he or she can make an appropriate decision. That's absolutely right. And that's the way I walked into that building every day looking to serve the president and his fulfillment of his constitutional obligations. But it's hard to dissociate the institution from the man. And what Donald Trump did to that institution forever tarnished it. It's just tough to see these long-honored, cherished institutions sullied. Here's the thing, though, and having had the honor and privilege of working at the White House myself as a much younger man in a much more junior role in one purely political, there are a lot of people, in fact, I would say, Alex, most people who, once they step inside that gate, you know, off Pennsylvania Avenue, will do whatever it takes to stay there. Because being that close to the center of power, 
is intoxicating for many people. Or, you know, you came up the military side. I came up because I worked for George W. Bush on a political campaign. But that proximity to the most powerful man in the world is something that I think a lot of folks are willing to sacrifice every last fiber of morality, decency, conscience, because they said, well, you know, when am I going to get my chance to come back here? Absolutely. It's a moth to a flame. And I certainly was drawn to the institution. I talk about it in my book that I had kind of had it planned for five years before that that's where I wanted to end up. But I also went in with kind of not recognizing how things were going to unfold that wasn't going to compromise my values or my oath to the Constitution, most importantly, for whatever might come. And that was a bright red line for me. Well, and so let's talk about that, Alex, because I think that for all of the horror and attendant bravery from President Zelensky on down of the Ukrainian people, and you and your brother are Ukrainian born, we should remind listeners of that. It was the summer of 2019 when Trump placed his so-called perfect phone call in which Zelensky said, you know, and correct me on the details here, we're ready to pay for some Javelin anti-tank missiles to defend ourselves. And Donald Trump said, yeah, 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 but I need you to do me a favor. The favor being digging up dirt or assigning someone to dig up dirt on then former Vice President Joe Biden because Trump and his people rightly so saw Biden as the biggest threat to someone taking him out of office in 2020. So take us a little bit through the perfect phone call to the extent that you can, because I want folks to remember that the invasion of two weeks ago by Vladimir Putin and his forces began with a phone call nearly three years ago. Sure. And there's a direct logic thread that takes you from there to here. But I, I do want to say that, you know, I came over to the U.S. as a refugee. We arrived here when I was four years old. So my affinity for Ukraine as mainly as an adult serving there as a U.S. Army officer in the U.S. Embassy, building relationships and developing friendships. So my ferocious kind of defense of Ukraine, it is from a human perspective, but it's mainly from a U.S. national security perspective. What dangers lie if we get this wrong? If it was kind of even conceptual in those early days, it was crystal clear going into November of this past year and December of this past year when I started writing extensively on the fact that this war is going to happen, we need to do more to avoid it, and then basically laying out the case for how it's going to unfold in January. Uh, so if we could attribute where we are today, this violent war between the largest country in the world with the largest country in Europe to a failure of imagination, failure of leadership across many administrations. From George W. Bush on to present day, there was a consistent lack of response to growing Russian aggression that encouraged Putin to double down because he felt a lack of accountability. He was acting with impunity. And that was a creep. It was a creep all the way through to the Trump administration. And then we lurched forward. We leaped forward towards this confrontation that we see today. Because you have to understand that Putin's been in power for 22 years. And in the early days, we had some wishful thinking, certainly on the direction Russia was taking. We had this conception, and Putin's masterful. He's a KGB officer. He understands how to prey on two fundamental emotions, hopes and fears. He preyed on the hopes of a normal relationship, of a Russia as a partner, of mutual prosperity that the US and EU hoped for, and also on the fears of a deteriorating relationship that could put the two most powerful militaries in the world at odds against each other. And he preyed on those, but he also incrementally pushed us really, really hard. He had his Chechen war. 
He cracked down on dissent internally. He destroyed kind of the oligarch class that was an alternative power center in Ukraine, Georgian war, the war against Ukraine that started in 2014, interference in U.S. elections, poisonings with nuclear grade material in uh, the U.K., assassination attempts. And then, you know, in the Trump administration, we forget that there was a continued press to undermine the Western liberal order, bounties on U.S. soldiers. And I think the biggest leap in the crisis occurred under Donald Trump because the very foundations of the uh, alliance in opposition to anti-democratic forces was Donald Trump sowing massive discord between us and our allies, weakening NATO, and with regards to Ukraine, damaging the relationship with Ukraine and adding to the perception that Ukraine is vulnerable, that the consequences for mucking around Ukraine and ultimately attacking Ukraine would be minimal. And then the discord in the United States. I mean, what we do here matters. We're the sole global superpower. It matters from this perspective of disunity. The prospect of a unified America, 330 million of us operating together in defense of our our nation, defense of our values, is a massive warning. But Trump showing that kind of discord in the U.S. lurched us forward to this crisis. But we have to remember this, this was a continuous effort starting in 2019 with Trump's attempts to upend the elections, continuing on through the big lie and attempting to overturn elections and insurrection. All of this is feeding into Putin's calculus on what the opportunity was. Was there an opportunity? And the answer consistently from Trump was yes. You have the president of the United States in government and after he leaves office, bandwagoning, cheerleading for Putin. You have the Republican Party captured by Trump, bandwagoning and cheerleading for Putin, saying that Russia is a good guy, Ukraine is the corrupt actor. And this happened all the way to hours before Russia invaded. Trump was saying how brilliant Putin was, how great it was that he was going to seize parts of Ukraine. So these folks have blood on their hands. They had blood on their hands from the Ukraine scandal episode all the way to the days and hours before when they were cheering Putin on to attempt this catastrophic attack that has a direct implication on U.S. national security. Because again, the largest country in the world attacking the largest country in Europe, the prospects of that remaining limited or a mirage, wishful thinking. Certainly there's spillover in the economic domain, but I think there is a high likelihood that the longer this goes on, the greater Russia's barbarism, the less tolerant the U.S. public will be for that kind of barbarism and the more appetite there will be to take some risk. So we have this legitimate, and we should have it, this is a fear that I think the American public has, is that we get drawn into this. We get drawn into this like we did in World War I, World War II in the first half of the 20th century. That is now a real possibility. And Donald Trump, Mike Pompeo, Tucker Carlson, Ron Johnson, Ted Cruz, the list goes on and on at the cost of countless lives. Yes, there's a lot there. I want to ask a couple of questions amongst those. One is, as a career army officer and national security expert, why is it that the idea of appeasement is always the first, it's always the most firmly rooted, and it's always the one that takes us down the path that the appeasement itself is trying to avoid, yet we always get there? Why don't we learn that lesson? In a lot of ways, we're reluctant warriors. We respond to danger. We don't foresee danger coming. That is a consistent theme. There are very few of us that have the foresight to look deep. And we tend to respond to near-term danger, short-term risks. 
So right now, the fear is that somehow we get into an escalatory spiral and that leads to nuclear war. The fundamental premise, the assumption that this is based on is that somehow Russia is prepared to go in that direction or is interested in going in that direction, that they have forgotten this ironclad doctrine of mutually assured destruction that nuclear war can never be won, thus must never be fought. They have no interest in doing that either. It's a tool of last resort. Nor do they have any interest in engaging in direct combat against U.S. forces. They are already bogged down in Ukraine, suffering immense losses. Why would they provoke or have an appetite for a war with NATO that would be even more disastrous for them? So they're going to look for every way to avoid it. But we're locked in on the worst case scenario. We think about consequences without probabilities. There are two key components to this formula. You have to understand the consequences, in which case at the end could be catastrophic, but the probabilities are negligible. They're higher than they were before this war started because now there's an active war, Russians are bleeding out, but they're still negligible because Russia does not have any need or desire for nuclear war. But they're willing to saber rattle because they know how we think in this one regard. They've miscalculated on a lot of other things, but they know this formula tried and true that if they do some saber rattling, we will deter. And we're laser focused on this near-term risk. We don't look to the days, weeks, and months ahead. Because if we did, we'd realize that the longer this war goes on, the higher the chance that we would be put in a position of making much, much tougher decisions. Our political elites don't even necessarily understand the mentality of the American people, which will demand greater action. That's the part that's missing. If you take a look at any of the polls, there's deep support for Ukraine. It's interesting. Across the aisle, MAGA and voters that voted for Trump in 16 and against him in 2020, consistently deep support for Ukraine. They were concerned about the potential for being drawn in. But as Russia continues to engage in barbarism, those voices are going to unite. Where we've been divided, they're going to unite on this theme. And it's amazing that our political class doesn't get this and that we're going to be in a position where we have to make much, much harder decisions. The things that seemed you know, beyond the pale, unreasonable now are going to seem easy compared to the decisions we have to make down the road. We already have gone down this road of making decisions that we thought were impossible two weeks ago. We've made them. So we just need to think beyond, you know, the next 24 hours. We need to think to the days and weeks ahead and recognize where we're headed. And the way we avoid these outcomes is by assuming some calculated risks to provide more support to Ukraine. This is going to be decided on the battlefields with the Ukrainian army, with the Ukrainian people defending their homes. We need to provide them the resources they need to bring this to an end, grind down the Russian armed forces more quickly to pretty much compel Putin to go to the negotiating table. He's already moving in that direction. We see that. On day like two or three, he's engaged in diplomacy. He wouldn't have done that if he thought he could achieve his political aims through military force. You know, in the aftermath of World War II, even back then, Alex, the Soviets wanted to sow discord, political discord specifically in Western Europe at that time, because they had a standing army of, you know, several million men. They were already on the borders. They already had Eastern Europe under their sphere of influence. You know, Stalin wanted the rest of the continent, too, in the name of security. But really, let's be clear, it was just aggression. But there was a through line in both American politics and American foreign policy through the Cold War, which was America is the beacon of democracy and the Soviet Union is an oppressive, murderous regime that will do whatever it can to maintain its own authority. But from the end of the Cold War to now, we had a pretty, and look, it's 30 years, right? Maybe this is amnesia that's normal, but it seems that there's a lot of vestigial 
cold warriors who are now waking up saying, oh, wait a second, Russia's maybe not our enemy, but they certainly weren't our friend. They were a strategic opponent, as I think Romney called them in 2012, a foe. So now it's sort of like all of the people of probably our age and older are waking up and going, oh, I remember this. I remember this. And maybe it's those younger Americans who, because they are native to social media and video in their lives, are now seeing what's happening. And so I think that's what you're seeing is two different poles of Americans, probably based on age more than anything, are starting now to go, oh, wait a second, we can't allow this to happen. And so I guess my question to you would be, as the foremost nation in the free world, I would say, what do you see as the next necessary steps for the United States? The president, in a lot of ways, has done a very good job to recognize the dangers here. Even though late in coming, I don't think this administration really started to acknowledge that this war was coming until closer to January, which is too late to really start to press to deter it. But in a lot of ways, started laying the groundwork for this global response. But there's more to be done. And one of those things is using the bully pulpit of the office of the president to rally the American people. This is a moment for him to explain to the American people the stakes. This is not just a far off battlefield between Russia and Ukraine. This is a pivotal battle in the war between democracy and authoritarianism. This will shape the 21st century for decades to come. This will either embolden China and its aspirations for Taiwan, for instance, or Iran and its domination of the Persian Gulf, or it will put authoritarian regimes on their heels and send the signal that the democratic world is united to resist authoritarianism, that the Western liberal order that allowed us to prosper from the end of the Cold War is the path forward for the 21st century. So I think that's important. I think rallying around President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people is actually an easy task. He just hasn't been communicating with the American people sufficiently. What I would like to see is a weekly address on what is going on, not a State of the Union once a year, but a weekly address on what's going on, what we're doing around this issue and other issues. I don't think there's nearly enough communication. So that's domestically here. I think overseas, there's more for us to do to consolidate through diplomacy, consolidate political opposition to Putin. Informationally, Russians are going to go back to their tradecraft of trying to sow discord. Economically, there's more headroom more blocking sanctions on Russian banks, getting the Europeans to also cut off energy trade with Russia is not a far-fetched idea. There's going to be costs, of course, but that's not a far-fetched idea. But militarily, that's where we're falling short. We've provided 17,000 missiles. Uh, these are anti-tank missiles and surface-to-air missiles. They're going to have tactical effects. They're going to make things harder for the Russians to operate. But the Russian military's biggest advantage actually is in long-range fires. These ballistic missiles that cruise in from hundreds of kilometers away these cruise missiles that are being fired from thousands of kilometers away from Syria, and these planes that come screaming in way above what a stinger could knock out. So we need to do some basic things. These jets, I don't want to get hung up on them. These should have been provided a long time ago. The risk of providing them is not high. We should be providing medium-range anti-tank, medium-range surface-to-air systems that could hit the high flyers. We should be providing unmanned combat aerial vehicles following their example of the Turks that continue to supply Ukraine in the middle of this fight. They're a member of NATO. They're doing so now. This is not new ground. Providing them with combat aerial vehicles, unmanned combat aerial vehicles. We should provide them with Western types so they could go after these deep targets, these airfields, these air bases, these ballistic missiles. And we should remember that this is actually not a high-risk proposition. This is within the bounds of how the game has been played for generations. So there's a way to do this. We don't have to do this directly right now. 
where we established no-fly zones and we put boots on the ground, that time has passed. If there was a, a consideration of doing that back before the war to deter Russia, it's probably not a wise idea to do it now. But I think I could see a path where we get there anyway. Reluctantly, we're forced to do this like we were in World War I, World War II. But we could avoid that by making some thoughtful decisions now and supplying the Ukrainians with the firepower they need to establish their own no-fly zone, to achieve their own effects. It's a country of 45 million people. They could do this on their own if we just give them the equipment they need. It's well within the bounds of proxy warfare, the rules of proxy warfare. We're not fighting them directly. But the reluctance, the skittishness of this administration is in certain ways shocking. And I hope this is constructive criticism because we just need to look beyond the next several days to see how this unfolds. And that really puts clarity on our way ahead. This is a moment for the Biden administration to rally American people, to back the winner, Ukraine, to avoid a larger confrontation, and to really go into the 2022-2024 elections with some big wins. And I think right now they're just missing it. So, Alex, let me ask you this. As someone who sat in the brain of the American national security apparatus, and I want to speak specifically about the MiGs, MiG-29s, is this a fight between the State Department and the Pentagon? Is this division within the National Security Council? Is this the president being unsure? Because a lot of these things, you know, if you go back and you look at David Halberstam's book, The Best and the Brightest, admittedly written many years ago, how the bureaucracy wants it to go is often how it ends up. Is that what you're seeing now? Or do you think this is more political decision making? I think it's political decision making, frankly. There's a consistency amongst the political class about a reluctance to act. It's a very deliberate political class. It's a very plotting political class. It's a very reactionary political class. And it's a very insular political class. So alternative voices don't necessarily get in there to offer considered counsel on the real risks because these are folks that have been close to President Biden for a long time. They want to insulate President Biden. They want to avoid a scenario in which somebody says, I had a different view. I wanted this to happen. I mean, some of this is speculative, but it's also informed by my own communications with some of these folks. You know, it's possible there are different schools of thought, even within the State Department, within defense. But I find it hard to believe that Department of Defense wouldn't provide some considered counsel because you could see some former senior military leaders coming out saying that these are things that can be done. These are things that are not super risky. But I don't know. It seems to be all about the consequences versus the probabilities and the dangers. I don't know. But I think that that's something that, again, going back to thinking about your role at the NSC as a constant, right, amongst administrations, right? Folks like you, professionals like you are supposed to be there regardless of who's sitting behind the Resolute desk. But I think that there's a broader thing, which is in the post-war world, every administration has brought a sort of ping pong effect. You have Clinton, you have Bush, you have Obama, you have Trump, you have Biden. And whatever political calculus was taking place was applied to everything, right, whether it was domestic policy or foreign policy. But that's very difficult for the world's prime democracy (laughs) to sustain because four years and eight years to us may seem like a long time. But as you know, as you're pointing out, four years, eight years in foreign policy is the blink of an eye. But if you're not prepared to say, this is who we are, this is what we're going to do, and this is what we're going to do consistently and set those things in motion, then you get stuff like Vladimir Putin, you know, bombing maternity hospitals. To your point, because of the weakness of the ground forces so far, 
And I want to talk about that. So the Red Army, I don't know if they still call it that, but the Red Army vaunted in the wake of World War II. I don't know how much action it saw outside of crushing democratic rebellions in Hungary and Czechoslovakia and Poland. And now, you know, it seems like, and if you look at, to your point, just to bring it domestically, the way Trump was talking, the way Carlson was talking, they all assumed, as I guess Putin did, that the Russian army was just going to roll over the Ukrainians. That didn't happen, has not happened. So what happened? Well, so there's something to be said, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the fundamental assumptions that drove the war planning here, the misconception that the Ukrainians were going to roll over, that this was going to be a you know, lightning operation to surround and seize the cities, remove the political leadership of Ukraine, replace them with a puppet regime, and then leave with, frankly, little force intact, you know, this idea of a fait accompli that prevents significant repercussions. You could see all the multiple ways that was wrong. The Ukrainians were not going to roll over. The Ukrainians were going to put up fierce resistance. The Ukrainians, they're not going to welcome the invading Russian army, a peacekeeping force. Those were all false. The assumptions about the West were all false, about the United States being divided and weak were all false based on the fact that fundamentally we have good people here and some of them might be brainwashed and activated by an effective propaganda campaign from Trump, but they see what's going on. They don't have to conceptualize what democracy is. They see it in front of them, what democracy and the struggle for democracy is anymore. It's not a far off concept. It's now people dying and bleeding in large numbers on the battlefields of Ukraine, the David versus Goliath story. So those are the assumptions that were wrong there. On the U.S. side, there were some fundamental assumptions from the Republicans about the Russian army, that this was going to be a quick or non-bloody operation. And those guys walked into a trap. Tucker Carlson walked into a kind of an ambush. He's going to have to live with that. And he's going to try to recast himself. But him and, and Trump are going to have to live with that. But we should also remember that there's a pattern on the Russian side that suggested this was okay, that this is going to be relatively quick. In smaller scale contingencies in Chechnya, Second Chechen War, the first war that Vladimir Putin had, he didn't have an effective army. It was an unreformed army, but he had a, an army with lots of firepower. And he had uh, an army that was prepared to resort to barbarism, level Grozny, you know, basically rubble it and break the will of the people. But it was much, much smaller. I mean, Grozny and Chechnya are tiny, whereas Ukraine is the largest country in Europe. It's bigger than the size of Texas. That is a much, much more challenging uh, situation. Georgia was a limited contingency. He didn't have to go in. It's a much smaller country. He didn't have to fight a large force. Syria was easier. Even the opening battles of this current war in the Donbass were far more limited, but against the Ukrainian army that was non-existent. This is by far the biggest confrontation Russia's had since World War II, and they were not trained or organized for this level of warfare, this kind of ferocious resistance. We shouldn't be deluded about what this means. This is still early days, two weeks in. Russia's taking punishing losses, but it has the vast majority of its air power intact, attack helicopters. It has ballistic missiles. It has a large military. They went in, you know, with 200,000 troops. They've taken losses, according to the Ukrainians, on the order of 12,000. That is not negligible, but they still have a lot of combat power, and this could grind on for weeks and months. So really, we should focus in on the fact that there's a lot of work to do to help the Ukrainians end this, and we need to arm them to do so on their own. Well, let me ask you this. We see the stuff from 6,000 miles away. Americans see the stuff from 6,000 miles away. And we see President Zelensky out there. We see individual Ukrainians speaking to us and to the world. 
We see farmers making off with anti-aircraft rigs or tanks. And then we see the horrors of this indiscriminate shelling and bombing. To your point, the only thing it looks like that Putin knows he can do pretty efficiently, right? The ground war is grinding. And to your point, he could apply more and more and more force. But what does it look like on the ground? Or has he just decided in his calculus, if I can't have the country, I'll just no one can. I think there's something to be said about that. I think as it's grinding now and without additional U.S. support, this plays out in weeks and months. And in those coming months, we have a scenario in which Russia continues to feed the fires of war. They have thousands and thousands of pieces of equipment in depots and storage. You know, this is older equipment, less effective equipment. They have the ability to conscript large numbers of soldiers as a country of 140 million. And that he thinks that there's a way to grind down Ukraine. That is a disastrous outcome because the losses on both sides are going to be immense and the losses on Ukraine for the civilian population are going to be immense. And that's a scenario, a recipe for disaster where the U.S. and NATO ultimately get dragged in. That's the protracted war scenario. There's a scenario in which on the other end of the spectrum, in which his forces continue to get mauled with these thousands of missiles that we've provided, his air power is destroyed because the, the Ukrainians have the ability to inflict punishing losses on these planes that are now cruising over the ranges of Stingers. The Ukrainians are armed with unmanned combat aerial vehicles or these MiGs that are able to operate deeper behind Russia's advance and destroy a Russian air defense. That would be critical because then that allows the Ukrainian Air Force to fly freely. Then to punish the airfields that these air bases that are in Belarus, that are in Crimea, annexed Crimea, that are in Russia, where these planes and helicopters are flying from, start to rain fire on those bases. You know, there are certain things that the Ukrainians are just simply not going to be able to reach. But these short-range ballistic missiles, these Iskanders, are easily targetable with the proper unmanned combat aerial vehicles. And that's where you get to the point where even Putin, with his insulated circle of henchmen that are now saying this war is still winnable, that we're cheering him on saying, you know, let's do this. They keep telling him the lie that everything is going to be fine. We just need a, need a couple more days. But Putin, after weeks of hearing these rosy scenarios, starts to wonder, wait, you know, you told me that weeks ago. We haven't achieved our objectives. And eventually he's like, OK, well, I guess I don't have the military force to do this. So let's negotiate in good faith to end this war. And that's a not unreasonable scenario because Putin could, as a tyrant and as a dictator, could turn around, pat himself on the back, say, Russian army, you did great. You demilitarized, you denazified Ukraine, you leveled a bunch of cities. Let's pack up and go home. Success. He could do that. And we very well may end up there. We may end up with something in between where he's built his land bridge between Russia and Crimea. A worst scenario would be seizing the entire south of the country, including cutting off Ukraine's access to the Black Sea. Those are really bad scenarios because then Ukraine is more isolated. Russia has immense naval power in the Black Sea. So another thing that I don't mention right now, because it's going to be important, but it's not decisive for the survival of Ukraine, is getting Ukraine coastal defense cruise missiles so they could target these Russian ships that are cruising around freely dozens of nautical miles away from the coast of Ukraine. Those are the things that could be meaningful and bring this to a quick conclusion. And then we don't have to have a U.S. forces on the ground or a no-fly zone. That's where we need to go. So, Alex, as we wrap up here, 
I'm going to oversimplify it. Does this end with a whimper or a mushroom cloud? That's up to us. I think the possibility of a hot war, and this is something I've tried to communicate to the administration, the days of returning to normal, to business as usual, are gone. We're now in a protracted Cold War with Russia, certainly in the economic landscape. Even after Russia withdraws, things are not going to get back to normal. The question is, how do we avoid a hot war? And it's when we do too little, not too much. How does this look for Putin on the inside of Russia? Rick Wilson, one of our co-founders, described Russia as an alligator being held onto by three people, Putin and the FSB, the military and the oligarchs. Do two-thirds of the alligator decide that the Putin end of the alligators, it's time for him to go? It's a possibility. I mean, what's clear to me is that this is the beginning of the end for Putin. The prospects of him hanging on to 2036 with two more terms seem very, very remote now as this has been handled, especially the longer it goes. I mean, there's a self-preservation component here where he could just declare a win and go home and try to minimize the losses, try to reduce the sanctions fallout and stuff like that. But the longer this goes, the higher the possibility that there are internal forces that start to apply significant pressure. Those are right now we are seeing small scale political anti-war protests. But when they turn into socioeconomic protests, when inflation goes sky high as it's starting to, when people go out on the streets because they don't they're not getting paid, when the security services stop getting paid and when the body bags start coming back in the thousands, the pressure starts to escalate. So. This is something that I frankly reluctant to predict, but I could tell you over the long term, this is a disaster for Putin. Well, let's do this. Let's pray for the Ukrainian people and appreciate their heroism and unwillingness to bend. And I, and I think that, Alex, it has had an effect on the majority of Americans. I think that it's an interesting thing that we've been out of a Cold War posture for 30 years, but that doesn't necessarily mean we should have just thought that like the world would leave us alone as much as anybody wants it to. So as you're leaving here, what's one thing you can tell our listeners? Is there anything they should think about, anything they can read, anything they can do that you think would be helpful to help everybody really understand what is a complicated and dynamic situation? Sure. So there's a couple things. First of all, I would love to see this nation rally around a cause uh, against authoritarianism. So rally in support of Ukraine. I think it's an opportunity to bring our population together over something that we all feel strongly about. I'd, I'd like to see this administration play a, a leading role in doing that. I think there's an opportunity to help the Ukrainian people directly, whether that's through charitable contributions or refugees start to come in welcoming him. I think it's interesting, you know, from listening to even MAGA folks that they'd be willing to open up their homes and admit refugees from Ukraine. And I think that would be an uh, important thing to do. And the last thing is let's not succumb to our fears and to a petty tribalism when we know that the stakes are higher. And they could be higher for us, but they're certainly higher for other fellow humans around the world. Well, amen to that. And Alex, I want to thank you for joining me again. Alex's book is Here, Right Matters. Alex, where can our folks find you on social media? I guess my biggest platform is Twitter. It's at A. Vindman. And then, you know, tune into cable news. I've been on quite a bit. No, you have been. And, and I want to thank you for both your service and your willingness to stand up when very few other people would and for your consistent analysis on this. Everybody, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Alex Venman, thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. 
Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.